This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Medieval Egypt had a rapid influx of Sufis, which has previously been explained through reactionary models of analysis. It was argued that the widespread popularity of Sufism was marked by a public adoption of practices that satisfied the masses in ways the religious elite were not fully addressing. In the popularization of Sufism in Ayyubid and Mamluk Egypt, 1173-1325, Nathan Hofer critiques the social binary that these assumptions create as well as rethinks the mechanisms within the social production of Sufi culture. He explores these concerns in the context of the Ayyubid and Mamluk states and their relationship with Sufi masters and communities. First, a state-sponsored Sufi lodge serves as a site for professionalization of Sufis and the public consumption of Sufi culture that aligns with state objectives. The emergence of the Shadaliya Sufi order serves as a case of textualization of an idealized Sufi identity, and its subsequent popularization through the production of a collective community. Finally, Hofer explores the unique context of Upper Egyptian Sufism, which relied on charismatic authority and miraculous work in the creation of a community. In our conversation, we discussed the notion of popular culture in the medieval world, hagiography and biography, miracles, the Hanka of Cairo, state religious sponsorship, professional Sufis, and contemporary methods for investigating the past. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. And now, here's my conversation with Nathan Hofer. Welcome, Nate. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm really good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this uh, this is really is a wonderful book, The Popularization of Sufism in Ayyubid and Mamluk, Egypt. Um, I think a lot of readers will uh, or listeners will certainly uh, benefit from our conversation, but I, I really do hope that they pick up the book. I think this has been uh, one of the most enjoyable reads I've had in a while. Um, you do a great job of blending kind of the theoretical um, and the mythological questions in terms of thinking about medieval Islamic uh, civilizations um, with these really kind of interesting case studies and, and detailed analysis. So you, you've done a wonderful job. Thank you. I, it was a lot of fun to write. So, so before we hop into the book, um, we always begin with a little bit about our authors. So, could you give us a little bit of a narrative about what brought you to the study of Islam? Perhaps uh, mentors or moments in your uh, upbringing or educational career that have been formative of where you uh, look at your materials or the types of questions you ask. How did, yeah, how did you get where you are? So 
Um, I'm from a really, I grew up in a, in Utah, actually, in a really small town in the desert in the southern half of the place. And my goal in finishing high school was to get out of there as fast as I can, uh, could. And so I, I went to uh, Arizona State University for my undergraduate degree. And I knew already, just for a bunch of boring reasons, that I wanted to study religion comparatively. So I went to Arizona State and I immediately was a major in the religious studies department. And I kind of fell in love with both studying Judaism and Islam. uh, And particularly for some reason, I don't know why it spoke to me, medieval Judaism and medieval Islam. And I had really great mentors there, in particular, um, Joel Garaboff in Judaism and Dave Damerel in Islam. And they both encouraged me to go to graduate school and continue what I was doing. So having no background in Judaism or Islam, I had no language. So I had to choose a program where I could work on language and kind of start from the bottom up. So Emory was where I ended up going and I got a master's degree in Jewish studies. And then I stayed on for my PhD in the, in the graduate division of religion. And I don't know how much detail is really of interest to people, but (laughs) it was, it's all interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I basically, when I started graduate school, I, couldn't decide whether I wanted to be a kind of Jewish studies person or an Islamic studies person. And I, the only workaround I could come up with was if I worked on the Jews of the Muslim world, uh, and in particular, those Jews who are interested in Sufi texts and practices, that would be a way of combining these two things, and I wouldn't have to choose. So I did my my entire, both my MA and my PhD were on, uh, you know, working in Arabic and Judeo-Arabic, um, reading Jewish Sufi texts and reading Sufi texts. And I ended up doing my PhD with both uh, David Blumenthal, who works on medieval Judaism, and Vince Cornell, who obviously works on Sufism. So that was kind of the two in, uh, formative influences on the way I thought about my work and and what I wanted to do. They were really, really great. And I had the chance to work with all the other really great Islamicists and Jewish studies people at Emory. It was really, to me, kind of the most perfect place to do what I was doing, for me anyway. Anyway, um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that's great. So um, your book, uh, you could see how that relates to that, but it doesn't clearly uh, emerge from from your biography. So could you talk a little bit about how this project – um, began for you and uh, perhaps how it changed over time? Yes, absolutely. So the original idea for this project was right at the beginning when I started my doctoral work. And my original thinking was that I would figure out a way to contextualize the so-called Jewish Sufis, this group of Jews in medieval Egypt who were really and explicitly engaged with Sufi texts, ideas, practices, I would find a way to contextualize them, not in terms of intellectual history, which is what most people have done, but in terms of a kind of social history of Sufism. And originally I thought it would be, you know, really easy. I would just cite all the social histories of 
Sufism uh, in Egypt and use that to contextualize the pietists. But it turns out that there's really very little social history written about Sufism in Ayub or Mamluk, Egypt, practically zero. Um, There's a little bit out there, but not much. So I had to scrap that idea and the project changed to write a social history on my own to kind of revisit the sources and come up with my own narrative of the social history of Sufism so that I could then contextualize the pietists. So the dissertation was actually much, much longer and uh, had a lot more kind of things going on in it than the book does. The Jewish Sufis had to be cut from the book ultimately. Um, But that's how the project started was in short to try to work with this, these pietist texts. Um, And it was, as I started working on it, it was Vince Cornell who really pushed me to incorporate sociological theory. And uh, I was already really very interested in theory and method in, in religious studies. Um, I did my comps with Laurie Patton in one area of my comps with Laurie Patton on that subject. And I was just really interested in theorizing this history more coherently. So it was Vince that pushed me to start reading sociology and that kind of blew my mind open. And then I discovered Bourdieu and some other French Marxist sociologists that really also opened the door for thinking about the social history of Sufism in in the way that I do in the book. So, yeah, I wrote the the dissertation uh, and immediately, as soon as I finished, took six months off and didn't do anything with it. And then I started to work on revising it. And it's it's a, it was a it was a very substantial revision based yeah, on it sounds kind of, like it after my read of the book yeah it was uh i i it was based on a lot broader engagement with kind of sociological theory and i revisited all of my sources basically to try to let me put it this way uh i didn't understand what my dissertation was really about until i was in my defense dissertation defense. And it was only during the, in the course of the defense that I realized that what I was writing about in this project was how Sufism actually became popular. Um, where like, you know, before Saladin, before the Ayyubid period, there were really, if you look at Sufi sources, there's, there's nothing. And it seems that there were no Sufis in Egypt at all. That's not, quite true. Um, but it made, I, you know, it was only when I finished writing and was defending it that I realized that what I really wanted to ask here pointedly is where did all these Sufis come from and, and how did it become so popular so quickly? Because while we have almost nothing from like, say, Fatimid or pre-Fatimid Egypt on the Sufis, by the Ayyubid and especially the early Mamluk period, there are just everywhere. Sufis in Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, they're in all the major urban centers, they're in rural areas, you know, the the Mamluks are all becoming interested in Sufism and the the people, the kind of the right, the masses, Alam, uh just it was widespread really quickly. So that was that became the focus of the revision was posing this question, how did it become so popular so quickly? 
Yeah, and that might, that might be a good uh, point to kind of dive in here a little more closely. You're talking about popular culture, this notion in the medieval world. Um, right. So, uh, and, and this I think would be valuable for people even working outside of the context of, of Sufism or your time period, but how has popular culture been understood or analyzed in Muslim societies? How would you recommend we rethink this category? What are, and, and I guess uh, more specifically, what are some of the underlying assumptions or standing theories about the popular popularization of Sufism? Yeah. Okay. So I'll take those one at a time. Um, let's see. I'll start with the uh, with the the assumptions about the popularization of Sufism. As far as I know, and I really spent a lot of time trying to find somebody, nobody really had directly attempted to answer, let alone ask this question of how Sufism became so popular. The only thing that one will find in secondary literature are, are several kind of overlapping embedded assumptions about Sufism in this period that uh, that the populace of Egypt and Syria, Iraq to a lesser extent, um, but mostly Egypt and Syria in the stuff that I've read, that the kind of embrace of Sufism happened only as a reaction to disasters. The, the loss of, of Al-Andalus, the crusader states, uh, and particularly the Mongol devastation of Baghdad, that all of these events kind of conspired uh, that and pushed the populace away from, as the source of these uh, scholars usually say, the dry legalism of Islam into the arms of the kind of welcome, mystical embrace of Sufism, um, the spirit, the, you know, the warm spirituality in contrast to the dry legalism. And this is also connects with how scholars talk about popular culture. Um, particularly there are a couple of, of shorter pieces. And then uh, like uh, Boaz Shoshan wrote a book about popular culture in Mamluk Egypt. And the assumption is that popular culture is the culture of the non elite. And this is, this is a much larger paradigm in medieval studies in general, that you have elite culture and you have popular culture. Um, and so studies of popular culture in medieval Islam tend to focus or try to recover what it is that the non-elites were up to, which is very interesting and, and worthwhile. But to me, it distorted the, the data for my particular question. My particular question of how did Sufism become popular, I quickly realized that if I only look at what the, what the kind of non-elites are doing, that I, you're missing a big chunk of the picture. And so in the book, I try to re-theorize popular culture based on contemporary. So I do this really weird thing in which I don't have any problem using contemporary theory that doesn't or should not apply to the medieval period. I have no problem using it. So like, you know, I use like Jean Baudrillard and uh, other people like that, Pierre Bourdieu, and I have no problem using that and people will say, um, you know, they're really talking about a capitalist system or a postmodern system and you can't use that to talk. But I I don't care. I found that they're useful to think with. Right. I'm not saying that they're, you know, the final authority, but I found this the stuff useful to think with for my particular question. So I 
kind of rethink what popular culture means in terms of truly popular in the in the contemporary sense, meaning that everybody, elites and non-elites, are doing it. And if you frame the question this way, um, you see pretty quickly the way that elite and non-elite cultures intersect and interact to uh, to produce Sufism on a wide kind of mass scale really rapidly. And it was that theoretical framing about popular culture and using sociology, um, particularly the sociology of institutions, to understand how Sufism as a kind of cultural product was produced and reproduced on an ever-expanding scale. I hope that answered your questions. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm glad you don't care, Nate, because I think it I think it does work, <laughs> and uh, I think I think it's useful. And um, we don't need to get into it um, here, but um, you do a lot of work thinking about agency and structure and the role of right. uh, institutions and organizations and actors, and uh, I think it works very well in thinking about the this kind of uh, production of Sufi culture. Um, with a, right. a, a dash of critiques of mysticism in there as well. And <laughs> yeah. you do some really good outlines of kind of a, a broad swaths of uh, history and development um, throughout the chapter. So there's a lot going on. But you're, you're looking at some interesting case studies, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move there. Yeah, sure. Um, if you don't mind. The, the book you break down here into to three sections, um, what you um, call state-sponsored Sufism, state-sanctioned Sufism, and then unruly Sufism. Um, so to, to start us off here, um, you focused on um, this, what, what you call state-sponsored Sufism, um, around a particular uh, state-sponsored Sufi lodge. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about what this place was about, why the state would want to establish a place like this, um, what kinds of activities and people were involved, uh, what, what was going on here? Yeah. So the the thinking behind dividing the book up, I should say, into these kind of state sponsored, state sanctioned and then unruly. I originally was calling it anti-state Sufism, but they weren't quite anti-state. So I dropped that. Um, but what I'm the reason I divide it up this way is I see Sufis making claims about legitimacy that intersect with the state's claims to legitimacy. And it was the kind of intersection of these claims, I want to argue in the book, that is where the intersection of elite and non-elite persons meet and produce new Sufi cultures. So the, the, the Hanka that I look at in the first part of the book, the Saida Surodat, which is the first state-sponsored Sufi lodge in Egypt, um, it was founded by Saladin himself in 1173, and we don't possess the original deed of endowment, but we have some other deeds, for instance, one from his Hanka in Jerusalem. Uh, we have snippets of what he said in later historiographical works, and I kind of try to reconstruct why would the state, you know, via or Saladin acting through the state apparatus – want to fund this massive project of converting an old palace, an old Fatimid palace into a Hanka and then paying, you know, really putting 300 Sufis onto the state payroll. And 
the 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 whole section it's three chapters looks at this from different directions so one chapter is you know why would saladin do this and my answer in really very short terms is that he it was he paid for this to happen he he set aside this money in the endowment and he put these sufis on the payroll in order to have them publicly perform state legitimacy, right? So part of the deal was that if you were a Sufi who lived at the Sa'id al-Sa'adat, you were required to parade every Friday from the Khanqa to the Al-Hakim Mosque for Friday prayers. And at the end of the parade, the Sufis would all publicly kind of bless and praise the founder of the Khanqa. So to me, this was a public performance of state legitimacy that the Sufis willingly participated in in exchange for room and board and food and sweets and other things. Um, they also got uh, vacation stipends to go on the Hajj and things like that. And then I kind of turn it around and I look at what kinds of individuals would want to live at a Khanqa in exchange for this. A lot of Sufis in this period would refuse to live in a state-sponsored organization like this, um, but many of them had no problem. So one assumption that I come across a lot in secondary literature is that Hankas kind of uncritically writ widely and largely, Hankas were integral in all places everywhere for the development of Sufi brotherhoods. Well, it turns out like, so for Saladin's Hanka had absolutely nothing to do with Sufi brotherhoods. These were all, for the most part, um, what, what we might call juridical Sufis, Sufis who had kind of equal training in Sufism and and the law, and most of them were, and in fact almost every single one of them were uh, Shafis. So it's pretty clear that Saladin wanted very particular kinds of Sufis at his Khanka, and legal scholars who were also interested in Sufism or considered themselves Sufis would come and usually they would stay there temporarily as a way of getting their foot in the door in Egypt before going on to do other things. So the Khanqa kind of served as this interesting site that drew in scholars primarily from the East, from Iraq and Khorasan. Um, and it was at the site of the Khanqa itself via these public performances, either marching, parading, um, doing kind of public ceremonies on other days that the, the elites at the, who lived at the Khanqa and the non-elites, the people of Cairo and Fustat, would come and watch them to be blessed and other things. And the, the, together, it's the elites and the non-elites, you know, and it's all funded by the state. They're all kind of negotiating the legitimate bounds of what Sufism could be. So the third chapter is actually uh, a series of case studies of these, inter these interesting interactions um, in which you see in some cases the populace getting behind the Sufis and really supporting them and thinking that they're imbued with, you know, baraka or blessedness. And then in other cases where the populace turns against them um, and this constant kind of struggle to negotiate legitimacy is the site of the production of Sufi culture at the Khanqa. So then, then, you know, each section is organized that way. Yeah. This, the, and the second, the second section, um, you move on to what you call state sanctioned Sufism. Um, and here you look at the development 
uh, or the early development of, of a Sufi brotherhood. Um, I wonder if, uh, before you kind of hop into the details of that, though, you, you kind of make some, some recommendations in terms of how we might think about, and, and I guess this gets to some of the, the theoretical questions you are interested in. Um, where do you recommend we begin in understanding the de- development of a, a Sufi Tariqa? You have some, some thoughts about this you outline in the book. So perhaps in relation to uh, how that's been done previously. Right. There's this really great line in um, Carl Ernst and Bruce Lawrence's book, Sufi Martyrs of Love on the Shishtia in South Asia, in which they say something I'm going to get it in. I know I'm going to get it, get it garbled, but to the effect that, uh, you know, the only thing we can say about the origin of Sufi brotherhoods is that we don't know how they emerge. Um, and I was always struck by that, that it's, it's, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is kind of trying to unmask what appears natural, right? Um, and kind of question or try to get at these, pro- these social processes that naturalize things. So Sufi brotherhoods are one of these phenomena that become naturalized to the point that it's really difficult to reconstruct how they actually developed in the first place. The, the sources are all from a later period and they back project later social formations onto the earlier foundational period. So what I basically came up with for the, for the second section on the Shadalia brotherhood in Egypt, which develops right in this exact time um, is that what you really are looking at is the institutionalization of corporate identity being mapped onto an eponymous foundational figure whose hagiography is simultaneously or dialectically mapped onto the social formation. And it's a kind of a dialectical unfolding of, of this like mutual mapping of, of the saints biography onto a nascent social group and the nascent social group being mapped back onto the biography. Um, and I, so I look at the, the earliest hagiography of Abu Hassan al-Shadili written by the kind of third major Sufi or Shadili master, Ibn al-Iskandari. I use his hagiography to see how, if I could reconstruct that process, which I think is more or less successful, I think. Um, <laughs> In that you can see in in Eliskenderi's work the ways in which he's trying to construct a biography that will make sense, you know, a hundred years, not not a hundred years, let's say a little over fifty years after Abul Hassan Ashadali's death. Um, he's trying to to map this identity, he's trying to write a biography that will make sense to an already nascent community who's who that exists. And you can see in Lata'if al Minan, this this book that he that he wrote, the way that Abul Hassan Ashadali's life and example are formative for these people, but the but they're also mapping later formations back onto Shadali. So I try to get at the emergence of of this of a brotherhood, of a tariqa using this kind of dialectical social, the institutionalization of corporate identity, 
um, and and then how that gets mapped backwards onto a, an eponymous figure. The the German scholar Jürgen Paul has written also about this, and his his work was really helpful uh, in thinking about the ways that tarikas develop. Um, so the that's that whole section is is an attempt, at least, to answer both how the Chatelier developed as a as a corporate identity, while also trying to reconstruct how they produced Sufi uh, Sufism on a on a mass scale. And for that, I use Ibn Atallah's writings in combination with a bunch of other uh, historical sources and biographical sources, and to, to note and pay close attention to these social spaces where elites and non-elites, again, are coming together to negotiate Sufism. And the, the section ends with this really famous event when Ibn Taymiyyah, the infamous Ibn Taymiyyah, is in Egypt in trouble again for like the 10th time. Um, and Ibn Atallah and some of the other Sufis, elite Sufis, and a, a big crowd of people go march on the citadel in Cairo to protest Ibn Taymiyyah and demand that he be incarcerated. And I use that as a as the kind of case study for how or one way that the the Shadalia produced a Sufi culture um, and this negotiation around, in particular, the the idea that Ibn Taymiyyah was so upset with of of calling on Sufi saints for intercession, um, and and how that social conflict drawing on like Simmel's sociology, how social conflict pr- can produce. Uh, interesting and long lasting social formations as much as uh, uh, cooperation can. So. Yeah. And maybe uh, to kind of get a little deeper into this section, because I I think it is useful. uh, What were the particular ways that this uh, construction of the, the eponymous founders identity was, drawn out? What are some of the characteristics that become highlighted? And then how did this aid in the production of this collective community uh, that you're talking about in a social context? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very good question. And it's really hard to say with any precision. I probably come across in the book as sounding like I'm a lot more sure than I actually am in real life. Um, <laughs> so it's, 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 but you're right. No, Anyway, I won't say that, but it, it's very difficult. So what my thinking is basically that a Sufi master like Abu Hassan al-Shadili, he, he had, we know from external sources, quite a, a, a large following during his lifetime. But if you pay close attention to the biographical literature uh, which is contemporary with him, and then over the next hundred years, you can literally and quite clearly see that in the earliest biographies, and I'm talking about um, non-hagiographical works here, so like people from outside the what would become the Brotherhood, when they write about him, they just talk about him as a Sufi, right? He's a master Sufi, um, and they give a, a very brief biography uh, by about a hundred years after his death, they are calling him Sheikh Taifa Shadaliya, and then much later Sheikh Tariqa Shadaliya. So, like the master of the Shadali 
group uh, or the master of the Shadowy Way. And it took about 100 years for that to happen. So what I think is going on is that the the master has followers. Um, and once those followers reach a critical mass, they begin to comport themselves on the model of the master. Um, eventually, this reaches a point uh, where it precipitates the writing down of the life of the master. And this hagiographical production is rooted both in the kind of collective memory of the group and their memory of the master who's long gone now. Um, but it's also based on the ways that their social interactions have patterned and repatterned new ideas. So that gets mapped back onto the shadowy and his life. And so one example of this is that it's pretty clear from the biographical sources that a shadowy probably did not know all of the really famous people that he is said to have met and known in his hagiography. Um, it's clear that that's a legitimizing tactic that Ibn Atala and others use to make him look like a really good uh, jurist Sufi scholar. Um, and so that these traits and personality associations get mapped back onto him to reflect the way that the community was developing. I don't know if this is making a whole lot of sense. It's clear in the book, I swear. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, as I said, it's, uh, in my mind, it's this dialectic of, of the, of the example being mapped onto the community or patterning the way that they interact. And then as those patterns develop, that gets mapped back onto the master's life, ultimately precipitating a written version and one of the things that I do in the book is I note that the hagiographies that are produced about him, if you, what tends to happen is that people will kind of combine all of the hagiographical material and try to write a biography based on the common, kind of common or uh, shared corpus of data there. But what I really found is that if you look at them individually, you can see different social formations or different collectivities competing to claim the, to claim him as their founder. So the two earliest hagiographies, one is from Egypt, but as the one I mentioned in the Tala, and then the other one is, um, was written by a North African Ibn Sabah. And it's pretty clear that Ibn Sabah's and Ibn Tala's two versions of the life, while they share some basic biographical data, they are really conceptualized in very radically different ways, and they reveal a great deal about the communities that produce them and their differing conceptions of authority. So that's kind of how I was able to reconstruct the process by which he became eponymized, eponymized, if that's, I don't think that's a word. I like it. I like it. I think it works. <laughs> yeah, let's use it. Um, so in the final section of the book, you, you turn to a totally different uh, social political context um, in Upper Egypt. Uh, so what, what exactly is going on here? What, what's different about Upper Egypt and how do these differences structure the Sufi communities in the region? Yeah, so this was my – and remains my favorite part of the book – um, Upper Egypt was basically in this period. So Ayyubid and early Mamluk Egypt was like 
the Wild West. It was really unruly. The state had a very hard time keeping the population under control, shall we say. So there were uh, very famously a, a large number of so-called sources, usually secondary literature, we'll call these Bedouin revolts, um, these kind of re rebellions against state authority emerging from Upper Egypt from the, the so-called Bedouin who lived there. Um, Joseph Rappaport has written about why that it's not quite accurate to call them Bedouin, but anyway. Um, so it, given its distance from Cairo, um, given its unusual geography, it's this very narrow strip of land stretching for a very long time along the Nile. Um, given the kinds of people who live there uh, and just the unique geography, the, the social geography, the politics of the place, when Sufis first emerge there, uh, they emerge right at the end of the Fatimid period, very early Ayyubid period. And it's mostly kind of the work of some transplants from North Africa. And they brought a very different conception of what Sufism looks like to Upper Egypt. And in the kind of Wild West environment of Upper Egypt, the Sufis that developed there, they're not anti-state. I originally, as I mentioned, wanted to call them anti-state Sufis. They're not necessarily anti-state, but they, they're not state-sanctioned or supported either. They, they're very critical of the state, and they, they – how should I say? So famously, they one of the most – telling events of this history uh, is that in 1307 in the city of Kus, which was the capital of Upper Egypt, the kind of ringleader of the Sufis of Upper Egypt at the time, Ibn Nuh al-Qusi, he riled up all of his followers, all of his Sufi followers and others about the, the kind of prominence of Christians in Upper Egypt in, in tax collection and in working for the state. And they they burned, they attacked churches and burned down, I think, 12 or 13 churches on a Sunday afternoon in 1307. Ibn Nuh was arrested in 1308 and he died in prison. Um, and I use that example in that section to kind of get at what what it is that these Sufis conceptualize their authority as. And, and it's primarily a conception of authority that is much more charismatic, shall we say. It's, it's, their authority is much more miraculous than either any of the Sufis at the Hanka or, or the Shadaliyah or most other Sufi groups in Egypt in this period. They are really, their biographies and the hagiographies written about them are full of miracles by an order of magnitude than any other Sufi in Egypt at the time. And I, my contention is that their authority is rooted in the miraculous specifically because they developed in this kind of lawless region um, in competition with state actors often. And they had no kind of, traditional forms of legitimation because they, they come from this very isolated area. Um, 
just there's the, the Sufism there looks very different specifically because of its uh, isolation. I think I'm rambling a little bit here, but what I'm trying to say, I think, is, let me put it this way. There are no Sufi brotherhoods that come from Upper Egypt, which is really surprising because there were a lot of Sufis at the time. And that's one of the questions I try to get at in that section is, why are they so miraculous? Why are they so unruly? And why did no brotherhoods emerge? And it's, I think, directly related to the fact that they, that the state was so weak in this area, while also they were isolated from other Sufis in many ways. They definitely had connections. Like Abul Hassan Ashadili and his student Abul Abbas al-Mursi both came to Upper Egypt multiple times. They, they turn up in the Upper Egyptian accounts. Um, they definitely knew Sufis from Syria, but for the most part, they, it was a very idiosyncratic development. And given that they legitimized their authority by recourse to miracles and, and the kind of powerful baraka that each of them had, it was impossible for them to kind of institutionalize the miraculous in a way that would give rise to any corporate identity, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah and I think you're, uh, I think you're successful in the way that you uh, communicate this in the book, uh, in in terms of the the broader um, kind of categorical um, uh, assumptions you're using in terms of ideas about organizations and institutions and agencies and structures and. Um, I think it works well within that context. Yeah, let me just say that uh, I am, in general, pretty incoherent in person and much more coherent <laughs> in writing for everyone that's listening. If you're, they've made you're it this far, you're coherent in both. But um, <laughs> so um, you you do a lot in this book. There's obviously a lot of details we're not going to be able to get through. Um, but what do you what are you hoping readers will come away with after reading this book? I would think that anyone working on uh, medieval Muslim societies would would benefit the, from reading this, even if they're not thinking about Sufism uh, more specifically. But uh, how do you imagine others might use your work, uh, apply your methodologies or conclusions? What are you hoping people can take away? Yeah, what I really hope, my what I really hoped when I was writing it, were I had a couple of hopes. So. The, the big one is that I really hope that other scholars will take up this question for other times and places. How actually did Sufism become popular in this particular time and place? There is, it's a very widespread assumption that Sufism is, is merely a reaction to legalism or disaster or catastrophe. And I really do not think that that is the case. There's no evidence in the, in the, historical, biographical, or hagiographical sources, and that's the case. Uh, I also really hope that this I, this notion of popular culture will replace the prior version, in which popular culture is just what the non-elites are doing. I really think that that's a limiting framework. So that's the other one. But, but the big one is that I really hoped that it would... Uh, I don't know, spur conversation. I, I, I really don't 
mind if people really think that I'm out of my mind um, for using all of this sociological and religious studies theory. Um, I don't mind if people think that I'm out of my mind about the way that Sufism develops and these ideas about the production of Sufi cultures. I really was hoping that at some point it will spur either uh, positive or negative conversations. Just what I really hoped was to kind of uh, fire a salvo into the field of Sufi studies and see what happens. Well, I think you you probably will achieve that. I hope readers will pick it up and engage. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, and I've always said this, that when I was writing it and then when I, you know, have given versions of the various parts of it in conferences and things that I would much rather have vehement opposition and kind of incredulous reactions than a kind of, yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I was, I, uh, <laughs> I had to tone it down a little bit from an early draft of the book, but I still try to be as provocative as I can in hopes that at least it will, uh, spur interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, Nate, uh, for listeners who, who have stayed with you and, um, I'm certainly <laughs> eager to know what kind of things, uh, are you working on now or should we expect from you in the near future? I am writing two books right now, uh, kind of semi-simultaneously. Um, the, the big question that I had when I was done with this book was I fell in, I just absolutely fell in love with biographical dictionaries and hagiographies, just in general, Arabic biographical historical writing from this period. I just absolutely love it. And I could, I never tire of reading it. And so I wanted to write a book about the history of what I call monographic hagiography. That is a hagiography devoted to a single person rather than a collectivity. Um, and I've, I've written quite a bit about it. That's never seen the light of day yet, but I realized last year at some point that I couldn't really write this book unless I understood better the genre of the biographical dictionary and kind of, non-hagiography i don't even you know there's no obvious there's there no there's no arabic word for hagiography exactly mm-hmm. um and it's just kind of a convention that we use so i really want to theorize like is there actually a difference between biography and hagiography in this period and if there is what is it and how can we think about it more coherently so right now i'm trying to finish a book about biographical dictionaries. It's mostly done. I've got the chapters written there. Each chapter is a case study of a different Sufi in the kind of standard biographical dictionary collections. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is put biographical dictionaries into the context of the sociology of knowledge and knowledge production in particularly Ayyubid, or let's say Saljuk, Ayyubid, and Mamluk periods. Um, and once I finish that, then I'm going to turn my attention to finishing that book on hagiography and the history of the, the, the genre of writing about one individual's Sufi in particular. So that's what's in the pipeline. Well, it sounds exciting. Those are books I would definitely read. So I hope perhaps we can talk about one of those in the future. Hopefully. All right. Well, good luck, Nate. Thanks for uh, making the time to talk about your book. Oh, thank you very much. 
That was my conversation with Nathan Hofer about his great new book, The Popularization of Sufism in Ayyubid and Mamluk, Egypt, 1173 to 1325, published with Edinburgh University Press in 2015. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.